to start out this morning, I, I think it's safe to say that most, if not all of us, believe that there's more to this life than this life, right? And, and, and most, not all, but most of you in the room or joining us online today, uh, most of us understandably are convinced that the way to have peace with God now in this life and in the life after this life is through Jesus Christ. And I, I, I believe that that's a fair assessment. And for those of you that would say, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that, here's something else I know about you. You have people in your life who do not believe that. Uh, people you might describe as not a believer or non-believer or not a Christian. Uh, they do not subscribe to what you believe. And, or maybe they did when they were young, but they have abandoned much, if not all, of that. And you might use a common phrase to describe them as being far from God. That there are people in your friend circle, people at work, people in school, in your family for sure, who would fit that description. And for the next few moments, I'd like you to just get two or three of those people that you know, just to draw them to mind. To just get them in your mind and keep them there for a moment. And while you do that, I'd like to rewind the clock for you back to March 18th, 1988. Uh, a great many of you were not even born yet. Some of you were children. Some of you, like me, were young adults by then. It was a pretty crazy decade. Obviously, it had the best music and hairstyles. Uh, and, and even though it was so, so long ago, some of what I'm about to share with you is, is very uncomfortable for me to share. In fact, it's, it's kind of embarrassing and when I say some of it out loud, even though I know I've been long forgiven, I still struggle to not feel ashamed of who I was at that point in my life. The evening of March 18th, 1988, it started out for me at a club in Tijuana. Uh, I was enjoying some 50-cent tequila shots, some 75-cent Coronas. The music was thumping. I had a good buzz going on. I was in the moment. I asked a girl to dance, and for the next hour or so, we drank and we danced and we talked until we took a taxi and left. And a night in Tijuana turned into a day trip to her place in Los Angeles where she was a student at UCLA, and let's just say we did not spend the day in Bible study. In fact, whether you were a church person or not, had you known me or met me at that point in my life, you absolutely would have described me as unchurched, an unbeliever, definitely not a Christian. You understandably would have perceived and described me as far from God. But ironically, you could not have been more wrong. I was closer than I'd ever been before. After leaving L.A. late that Saturday night, I got back to base, I walked onto my ship, I went to my compartment, I started to get ready for bed when God staged a very unexpected intervention. See, I'd grown up as a child in church, and even though a lot of that came to an end when I was about eight, I had grandparents and family and non-family members who through my life had been sharing their faith with me. They, they lived it really, really well. That lodged into my heart and my mind. And in fact, I had read the Bible a lot. I'd been baptized as a child, and the truth was that weekend in 1988, I believed in God. I even believed in Jesus. I believed that there was more to this life than this life. But you never would have been able to tell that by my speech, by my morality, by my lifestyle, because I was living my life doing what I wanted, when I wanted, with who I wanted, 
And God, while I'd pretty much put God up on a shelf in a box in case I needed him, but I did that so that I could live the way that I wanted without feeling guilty. And I was saving becoming a real Christian for a later date. But again, God had other plans. I was getting ready for bed. I was reflecting on the past 48 hours and then just bam. I suddenly experienced a dramatic visceral moment in my mind and it was as if I could see the entire landscape of my life up until then and towards the future. And as I looked towards the future, there were two paths. And while I've often said I'm not sure if I've ever heard the audible voice of God, I would say this moment was the closest that I'm aware of. And it was a singular word that was ringing loudly in my mind. And the word was choose. And I completely, for me, understood what that meant. I, I knew I had to make a decision right then and there. Was I going to continue down the road that I had chosen for my life up to that point? Or was I going to surrender to God's? And in that moment, I was flooded with fear and shame and embarrassment because I knew. I knew I had been living a life of rebellion, a life where I justified doing what I wanted, when I wanted, with who I wanted. I knew deep down that God loved me. I wasn't sure if he liked me. I knew he wanted better from and for me, and I had basically put him on a shelf until I might need him at some point. But I thought of my grandparents, people that I revered for many reasons, one of the biggest being their faith and how they lived it out, and I thought of how ashamed that they would have been if they were to truly know the life that I had been living, how I had rejected nearly everything they had tried to teach me about God's love, God's values, God honoring morality, how to live. I felt ashamed of the way that I had treated women with such little value, convincing myself that sex was just physical, and they appeared to clearly feel the same, but I knew better. I knew better. I knew it was more than physical, and I knew that for most of these young women, because I talked to some of them, they're like me. We were just using sex to try and satisfy an appetite or as an attempt as validation or to feel attractive or valued, only to wake up the next morning with self-loathing. I mean, it's not called the walk of shame for nothing. And that night in March, my mind flooded with all the ways that I had run and rebelled, and though I had no idea what it would mean, I dropped to my knees, and with tears and emotion, I prayed, God, I give up. I give up. I choose you. So if you're there, and it's not too late, change my life. And would you bring a Christian woman into my life? Because though you never would have been able to tell it, I longed for an authentic relationship. And I knew intuitively if what I perceived what God was calling me to was going to take hold, I was going to need a partner. After I finally settled down, I slept for about five hours. I chose the church. It was about 25 minutes from the base. I'd seen it about a month before. This was March 20th, 1988. The exact date and coordinates are tattooed onto my arm. And on this exact spot, two life-altering things happened. The first is that I knew I was going to dedicate my life full-time to helping lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. The second thing that happened that day at that exact location is I met the woman who 15 months later I would marry and eventually raise four sons with. That first day at church, after introducing myself to her, she invited me to sit with her during the service. Afterwards, I invited her to lunch. 
But I thought, here's this good Christian girl who's probably never been kissed, and whereas I was me. With my history and my baggage, and the longer we spent the day together, that I thought, a woman of this caliber, when she finds out who I really am, she won't want anything to do with me. So over ice cream in an ice cream shop that afternoon, I got it all on the table. Everything. Up to my experience with God, my prayer. About 15 hours earlier. And after I got it all out, I said, so if you'd like me to take you back to your car now, I will. (laughs) And in response, she looked me in the eye, and I remember it like it was yesterday. She said, Chad, I don't care about the man that you were. I care about the man that God's going to make you. I couldn't believe it. And here we are 33 years later, deeply in love, most of those years happy, having raised four sons, having served side by side in ministry for over 25 years, working to affect both spiritual and social change. Now let me circle back. Do you still have that person or those two or three people in mind? The people in your life, when I ask you to bring to mind that you would describe as unchurched or an unbeliever, definitely not a Christian, far from God, here's what I want you to hear. You have no idea how close they really are. You have no idea how close they may actually be that they might just be one moment, one conversation, one invitation, one experience away from a moment in which everything will change for them. And just like I can name names of people who because of their courage and their intentional investment into me, in my life played a role to make, that made sure that when my moment came, I knew what it looked like to turn and to surrender to God. And it wasn't just family members. It was a welder named Maurice who worked with me at a steel mezzanine factory before I went to boot camp. It was a guy named John who reached out to me in high school. It was a guy named Ben in my division, on my ship. And just like when I tell my story, I can name names. For those of you that would say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Jesus follower, you can name names of people that played a role in that. People who helped you know and follow Jesus. God has people, you need to know this, God has people in your life. He's positioned people in your life now and is going to do it in the future that when they tell their story in the future, God intends for your name to be named in their story. About the moment of their life in which everything changed, in which they turned to God and became a follower of Jesus and that you played a role in that. And here's the biggest reason why I shared an uncomfortable bit of my story and why I say all this, and it's because I have a concern. And my concern is that we have gotten or will get so busy doing church and doing church stuff that we will be content and consumed with that and that we will lose sight of the core thing that we've been called to do, that we will lose or that we may have in some ways lost sight of our marching orders as handed down to us by Jesus. As most of us know, when Jesus was about to depart this planet, he gathered his closest disciples together, his followers on the hillside. He said, listen, I'm leaving, but this is only the beginning. I have some marching orders for you, and I'll be sending a helper, the Holy Spirit, and he's going to help you. But you have a crucial role 
to play. Here's what you're to do. You are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always by my Spirit to the very end of the age. Jesus said, here are your marching orders. You need to go and make followers. You need to go and make followers who make followers. You are to make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples until the time, until the time for this earth comes to an end and I return. And the term disciple isn't something we often use in our culture. It's like, what does that even mean? So to help you out with that, here's how we would define a disciple. A disciple is someone whose following of Jesus leads them to a life defined by a prevailing faith and selfless love. A person for whom that no matter what they face in life, no matter what temptation they face, that they would possess a faith that prevails in trust and obedience. A faith that serves as both a rock and a guide. That when it comes to how then they live and treat others with their time and their money and their resources, their posture, their position, their power, their morality, their body, that they would exhibit a selfless love. A person with a prevailing faith and a selfless love. This is a disciple. And our marching orders given to Jesus, or given by Jesus, is to those that would follow and obey Him then and follow and obey Him now, that we would be followers who would help other people become followers and to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus, to teach them to live according to how Jesus taught us to live. And these marching orders have been handed down from generation after generation after generation to us. It's our turn. We're responsible. And my concern is that I have done a poor job communicating this and demonstrating this clearly and often enough. My concern is that we would be so consumed with church services and programs and the church itself that that we as individuals would lose sight of our personal responsibility to lead other people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, to help people find and follow Jesus, because an institution cannot make a disciple. A church organization cannot make a disciple. A group of people, no matter how well organized, cannot bring a person into faith in Christ. It is a one-on-one, person-to-person thing, which is why Jesus did not stand on the hillside that day and said, go form a 501c3 organization and get organized. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But he looked at these men and these women and said, this is your personal responsibility to make sure that people know about me. It is your personal responsibility for people, for, to, for you to make sure that people know what I taught and did and why, to help them to put their trust and their faith in me, to obey me, to follow me, and that they in turn would entrust that same body of knowledge with other people so that they would share it with other people, so that they would share it with other people. The church, the ecclesia, the movement of the Lord Jesus Christ is not an institutionally or organizationally driven thing. It is a one-to-one, people-to-people driven thing. And as I look to the future, my concern is that if we don't pay attention to this, if we don't get this, we're just going to go the way of most other churches. 
And when I say most other churches, what I mean is the gravitational pull. It's not a bad thing. It's just a thing thing. The gravitational pull of every church is to the inside. And most go that direction. And they get off track with Jesus' marching orders because as I'm going to explain in a minute, what we're trying to do is hard to do. What we're trying to attempt as a church is very difficult. And my concern is that if you're not aware of this critical part of following Jesus or that you would lose sight of a personal passion for this, that we will all become very busy with the life with life and being a good Christian, whatever that is, and even plugged into the life of this church and volunteering and connecting in groups, but that we would fail to maximize our potential in terms of individually and collectively leading people to find and follow Jesus, a growing, life-transforming relationship with Christ and helping them to mature and grow, that we would be doing life and doing church in such a way that we're unable to personally point to where in our lives we're pouring our lives and the people outside the church, working to bring them into the church, sharing our faith personally and discipling them. See, here's my reality. You know, I, I can go through the whole week and be very consumed with you guys, with all of you. And on Monday, I can look back and say, okay, over the pre previous seven days, other than preaching a sermon, and meeting with and having important conversations, and they are important, with members of New Life or guests, did I personally involve myself in the life of anyone outside the church to bring them to faith in Christ? And what's embarrassing is there are far too many weeks where I have to say I didn't. And I'm the leader. And I could go like... But Lord, you know, I'm busy, you know, I'm the pastor, there's a lot of people, I mean, you're the one that called me to this, and you know, there's a bunch of people at New Life, they need care and they need attention, and because of how I'm wired, I want to respond to all of that. I want to respond to all of the things going on in all of your lives, and many of you, quite honestly, you're just the kind of people I really enjoy spending time with, and without ever meaning to. The church, this church, the church that I love, can cause me to lose sight and to lose track and get distracted from my marching orders. And all of us, we can get very busy just doing church and going to church and attending and serving on Sunday, maybe small group during the week, but not be focused and not be intentionally engaged in leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And if we allow that to continue to whatever degree it's already happening, if we allow that to take root in this church, we will be open, but we will be out of business. Because we will be out of God's business. And like far too many churches, we'll just become content with talking to ourselves and making ourselves feel good, make sure our kids grow up in protected environments. But this is not what Jesus had in mind when he said, okay guys, what I've got for you to do, two words, make disciples. It's a complete sentence. Make disciples, that's what I want you to do. And as I said, what we're attempting to do, what we're attempting to do as a church is very hard. Because you know what we're trying to do? We're trying to create a church that people have been alienated from the church or driven away or avoided church to create a church that the unchurched would love to attend and engage. That is hard to do. 
And think of it. We're trying to convince people that a guy who lived 2,000 years ago is their Savior. And that they should put their eternal faith in Him for their eternal destiny. And that they should change the way they do marriage. They should change the way they handle finances and handle sex and sexuality. How they raise their kids. What they do on Sunday morning. That they should rearrange and reorient their whole life to this, and then that they should feel so strongly about it, they should go out and bother other people with this very same message and mindset. This is very, very hard. I don't know what you do for a living. It's not as hard as this. This is very hard to do, and the reason some of you have not been involved in the process of making disciples is because you know how hard it is. You know what it's like 9 out of 10 or 99 times out of 100 to get the metaphorical door slammed in your face to this. You know how hard this is because you have friends and family that deep down you know they just kind of tolerate this part of you. They accept this part of you, but deep down they think you're a little crazy. They think you may be a religious nut. This is hard work. This is hard work, and this is the very reason that most churches, and quite honestly, most Christians, are not on task. Because it's a lot easier, so much easier, to just have church. It's so much easier to just have a church service and hope that someone gets accidentally saved. Not because we were intentional. To make sure all of our kids get saved. It's a whole lot easier to just serve in the community and provide free laundry and support the fight against sex trafficking and helping victims and helping refugees in Ukraine and do a whole lot of great things. It's so easier to focus on, focus on social projects. It is very difficult to stay on task in leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ I mean, we could put in all of our best effort with all of our money and enthusiasm and organization and have passion with preaching and music and music in the background and, and soft music in the background. But in the end, what we're trying to do is impossible if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up. If the Holy Spirit doesn't get involved. Years ago, uh, Harvard Business School... Uh, actually, this is just a fascinating story, but one of the fastest growing churches in America somehow got on their radar. They decided uh, this church is just knocking it out of the park in, in this large city, reaching atheists and agnostics. It's like, what's happening here? So they actually did a study to figure out, like, why is this happening? These efforts, their approach, it's having a huge impact. And they did this whole study. They actually invited the senior pastor uh, to come to Harvard. He met with students to discuss the study. After uh, he spoke, the professor asked one of the women in this class, said, uh, asked, what do you think of their mission? And again, remember, this is a secular organization, an institution. After a moment of silence, she said, as I see it, the church is trying to turn atheists into missionaries. And that's one hell of a challenge. And she was exactly right. When a group of Jesus followers are on mission with Jesus' marching orders, no wonder it's hard. We're trying to do something that perhaps the average church isn't trying to do. We're on the front end working to lead people into a relationship with Jesus, and then on the back end trying to help them become sold-out zealots who will go out and bother other people with this message and to reach them with the good news. 
And when we started New Life, that was the dream. That was the hope. To reach the unbeliever, to reach the unchurched or the de-churched. And that's a high bar. But my hope is that is the kind of church that you want to be a part of. And here's the thing, though. Here's what defines how we're doing. We're doing only as well as you're doing. What I mean is I could give you some statistics and work them a little bit and give you some anecdotal stories of what we're doing as a church, and you'd be like, man, we're doing great. But the bottom line is that we're only doing as well as you're doing. In other words, we rise or fall on your willingness and my willingness to embrace and adopt the mission of this church. To be followers who make followers. To be disciples who make disciples. To be a follower who makes followers. And to the degree that that is your mission, that's how well we'll be doing. And while I am fully aware there are things that we can, could do differently and do better to make our environments even more welcoming and attractive to the unchurched, all that is just our part or partnership of the bigger thing that you're doing individually in your life. It's such a small part of the process because, again, we will only do as well as you're doing. And I can give you a little quiz to help you know how you're doing. It's very simple. Here it is. How do I know how I'm doing? Look at your calendar and listen to your prayers. And I know you're busy. We're all so busy. But all you have to do is ask, is there a slice of time that I'm consistently and intentionally giving to reach and build relationships with people who are outside of the faith. If not, I'm not. I'm not on task. You're not on task. It's just that simple. I'm not trying to be mean or judgmental. I'm just giving the fact. And listen to your prayers and your prayer requests. And everything else that you pray for, that you should pray for, are you praying for certain men and women by name, certain students by name? Are you asking not just for God to do a work in their life, are you asking God, give me an opportunity? God, give me an opportunity. I've known this guy, I've known this gal for years. Give me an opportunity to share my faith in such a way and share the gospel in such a way, the good news in such a way that they'll hear it, they'll listen, it'll make a difference. Look at your calendars and just listen to your prayers. And I just need you to hear this. If you don't own this, if you don't own the marching orders of Jesus to make disciples, it's not going to happen. It doesn't matter how much money or talent we might work to accumulate as a church organization, or how much singing or preaching we might have, how relevant it might be. It is just going to be us talking to ourselves and every once in a while, someone will accidentally get saved, but not because we were intentional. So I have to ask a few questions of you. And the first is just this. Are you willing? Are you willing to own our mission first for you to be a disciple, to be a follower? Not just, you know, I prayed the prayer, I'm done, I'm in, but that you would be a student, a follower. And are you willing to come back just over the next two weeks for us to talk about it. To make being a part of the next two weeks a priority as we unpack the what and the why of our mission so that you can have clarity as to what Jesus has called you and me and us to do and how to do it. 
The third is this. It's a very specific challenge. Would you be willing to cultivate a relationship with at least one person outside the faith, lead them to Christ, and then spend a year with them in whatever format you choose? That is to develop a relationship and over time bring them to faith in Christ and then to meet with them for a year, any environment, because they need to grow. And to be clear, this can be anybody except your young children. They don't count. (laughs) They count, but not for this assignment. Okay, you got an adult, son or daughter, go for it. You got a parent, a brother, a sister, go for it. Friends, neighbors, maybe even a niece or nephew, go for it. But one way or another, you and I must individually be in the process of cultivating relationships with people outside the church. And if you will do that, we will stay on task. If you don't, we won't. It's just that simple. Because the other beautiful thing that happens is when you're investing in the lives of others, what happens here on the weekend or the events, you'll begin to see them through their eyes. And you will help us be better. So I want to clarify something. I I don't mean that you have to be there when they pray the prayer or that defining moment like what I had at 2 a.m. Y'all, if you were born yet, you were sleeping. I'm just saying that you, what I'm saying is you need to be instrumental in the process. That God already has them in so that when they do come to that moment where they decide they know Christ, that you'll be able to say, I played a part in that. Because it's a team effort. You'll be able to say, I had a part in that. A few months ago, I met for coffee with someone newer to New Life. She told me how at the end of one of my messages a few months ago, I had challenged everyone who is a Christian or a Jesus follower to actually write a letter, if they were alive, to the person or the people in their life who had the biggest impact on their coming to faith in Jesus. Some of you right now are going, oh man, I, remember, I forgot to do that. Now you know. So she actually followed through on this assignment. So she's like my wife, a rule follower. Do what's told. The unexpected happened. She got a letter back. And she shared this letter with me and she gave me permission to share it with you. And here's what this other person wrote. Dear Linda, I cannot begin to tell you how much your letter blessed me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Even though I said I can't begin to tell you, I'm going to try to tell you. Two or three days ago, you popped into my head and I prayed for you and I thought about you So do you suppose that was about the time you were writing? This very morning, I got an email, and that person was telling me about being in the service and leading a buddy who was now a great friend of the Lord. Well, I stopped and said to the Lord, you know, Lord, I've never led anybody to you. What, What kind of person am I? In fact, the enemy has always held that over my head, that I have never done anything for the Lord. My classic reply to get him off my back is to say, well, God did not call me to be an evangelist, but a teacher. But when our pastor has one of those sermons about what we should be doing with a neighbor, etc., guilt comes on again. And then, Linda, five hours after saying that and reading that convicting email, I opened and read your letter. Truly, I felt like the timing was a miracle, a big miracle. So thank you for taking the time to write that to me. I laughed at this part. Thank your pastor for making you do it. Just so exciting for me and so wonderful that you shared. Now there are two big takeaways from that. And the first is you should always, always follow through on any assignment I give you. (laughs) Really. 
Like, listen, I know how this works, whether it's me or TJ, whoever's speaking. You know, we work hard to give you these perfect applications every single week, handlebars for your faith. You nod, you agree. I agree with you, Chad. That'd be a great thing to do. And then you go to lunch and you never follow through, you bunch of slackers. But see what you might be missing out on. Joking aside, being part of a, of, of a follower of Jesus is to follow. Part of being a disciple is to not just agree that something is good, it's to do that something that is good. Because look at the opportunity that would have been missed had this person not applied what they heard. And as a result, what a huge blessing for both of them. And again, the revelation like, oh my goodness, I should never underestimate what God is willing and able to do through me in the life of another. And that's so important for you to hear. Don't ever underestimate what God is willing and able to do through you in the life of another. Because you never have any idea what, like nobody would have any idea what God was doing in my heart on that weekend in March and how close I was. This woman clearly had no idea the impact she had. She was just trying to be faithful with what God had given her and invest in the life of another. She had no idea the impact she was making. While I hope, while I hope you are there in that big moment of decision, when it comes, the most important thing is that you played a part in them getting there. And for many of you, the day is going to come where you're going to see, some, some, see them come and join us. And then you're going to see them bring some of their family and friends. You're going to see some get baptized. You're going to see them bring other friends. You're going to see, see their faith come alive. And some of you are going to get the sweet, sweet experience of knowing I had a part in that. I want that for you. And God for sure not only wants that for you, He has positioned you for this. Now as I bring this home, let me just say to anyone who might be listening or hearing this thinking, this is why I don't like Christians. They're always trying to get me to believe stuff. So first off, let me tell you the good news is most Christians won't bother you. They're, they're just never going to bring it up. You'll work with them for years, you'll live next to them, and they will never mention the Jesus or the church word. They'll never give you anything to read. They'll leave you completely alone. But you know what the, why that's a tragedy? Is because as a, a believer, you carry the cure to a fatal disease that they've never shared. They have the cure to the disease with a far greater impact than diabetes or cancer, and all around are Christians who never open their mouth. They carry inside their soul the cure to a problem, the disease of sin, the disease that makes it hard to stay married, the disease that made it impossible to stay married the first or the second time, the cure for sin that causes a wedge between spouses or parents and children, and children and their parents. They have a cure for the disease that causes you to be so afraid of the future, your fears, your anxiety, your lack of peace. They have a cure for all of that, and yet they never open their mouths. But for some of us, the reason we feel so compelled to bother you and hassle you and invite you and to cram what we believe down your throat is because we believe that everybody dies. I mean, ever, ever notice everybody ends up in a box or an urn? So we can agree on that point. The second thing we believe is that we believe that everybody lives forever somewhere. We believe that when you die, you don't go out of existence. Most people in the world believe that. So we're not weird on these first two points. Here's where we part ways with some people. None of us have died yet. So none of us know experientially what's on the other side. We've been at funerals and we've stood next to the body or ashes of people who have died and wondered, what's it like? What's it going to be like for me? When I'm in the box and everybody is hopefully saying nice things about me and for some of us it's scary to think about it so we just don't think about it. 
But for many of us, here's how we've resolved it. We believe that anybody who can predict and pull off their own death and resurrection and come back from the dead after three days and then tell us what it's like on the other side, we probably ought to just go with what they say. And I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm thinking I'm going with the guy who has been there and come back to tell us what it's like, whether I like what he says or not, because I don't know what's on the other side. And again, death scares me a bit, just like it scares you a bit. And Jesus said on the other side, not everybody goes to heaven. Some people go to hell. And to the surprise of all of us, he said some good people go to hell. And a lot of bad people go to heaven. And the people who go to heaven are not the people who try hard and do good things. The great news is everybody is welcome. Everyone gets in the same way. Because the way to make the cut is simple. Put your trust in me. For for Jesus to say, just put your trust who I have claimed to be, punctuated by his resurrection from the dead, to become his follower, to become his disciple. Right or wrong, that's what we believe. So to sit next to someone in the office and, and to live next door and never open our mouths would be like having the cure to a disease and saying, you know, it's just too bad. I don't want to bother him or bother her with the cure for their disease. It's none of my business. So that's why we have to be a pain sometimes. That's why I'm challenging us in our community to get into the lives of people, to invite them to stuff, to ask them hard questions, to make them a little bit uncomfortable at times because we love them. And our Christian brothers and sisters who haven't opened their mouths, when we don't do that, basically what we're saying, we don't love them very much. But we need to not be quiet. Because fortunately, there were people in my life who did not keep quiet. And there were people in your life that did not keep quiet. So if we're offensive, we can apologize, but we just can't shut up because of what we believe. And we've been given an assignment. We've been given marching orders from God's one and only Son. And of anything else we might do in our life, this is the greatest and most important. So please, please don't miss the next two weeks as we unpack this and get much-needed clarity because the end for us is to make followers, to make disciples. Let me pray for us. Father, I just acknowledge before you and everyone that especially in our current culture that seems so volatile and divided, in some ways it feels more terrifying than ever to broach the subject. And yet, Father, you've given us not just this opportunity, but an expectation that if we believe in you and we put our faith in you and we believe that you've saved us and that you're the only way, there's the expectation that we would use our mouths, not just our actions and hope somebody figures it out. But God, it it's stressful. It's scary. We're afraid of what if we say the wrong thing? What if we do something wrong and push them away? And God, I just pray for every single one listening to me and to pray for myself that you would help us to not be such cowards, that you would cause us to be bold, loving, tactful, thoughtful, but bold and loving. Without your help, it's not going to happen. And Father, I pray for the people that are already connected to our lives, represented by the people in this room and those online, that you have positioned on purpose that we would be the one 
to help them to know and understand and believe in what they need to know and understand and believe so that they might be saved and blessed in this life and the life to come. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.